My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And we are via distance this week, but this will be like the last time we have to do it via distance yeah, for a long time. Exciting. And it's also, there's like a bunch of exciting things. So uh, because Grace is coming back to Hallie, Grace is going to be back ooh. in Halifax. So yep. we're going to be able to see each other all the time and record the, time. the podcast in person. In the and, new uh, studio. Yeah, we're also going to be in a brand new, amazing studio. Um, I did just want to take a minute. We did. We collectively wanted to take a moment at the top of this podcast <laughs> to just congratulate a pretty impressive Canadian. Um, we wanted to congratulate Alfonso Davies, uh, who Yay. is now the yeah he's the first member of the Canadian men's national team to play for and win the Champions League. Uh, trophy like to win to win the whole thing and he's only 19 and he's yeah he's from Canada he's 19 and I mean I'm starting to feel super old because I've been <laughs> looking at pictures of him and I'm like oh my god he looks like a child that's how I feel when I watch you the Olympics like and stuff boy. I'm yeah, just like, like the people that are really dominating certain sports are like a generation younger than me now I'm like oh, oh my god. no Watching, like, women's gymnastics, they're, like, 16. I know. They're tiny. You're a little baby. You're a small baby. (laughs) But also, it must be weird to be, like, I have a career, and now I'm going to age out of my career in my mid-20s. Like, talk about a quarter-life crisis. Right? Yeah, to be, like, to be retired from your career. Like I know. No longer a competitive athlete in your career. Like, that's an early peak. Yeah. But not Alfonso. He's she's just starting no. out. Oh th- it's only up from here, hopefully. Only upwards and <laughs> onwards. Yeah, and the Raptors have just won um, just won their first round. Their first round of their series. Uh Canada's Canada's doing great right now. We're doing good sports wise. That's just awesome. Killing it. Just it's, killing it. I have these like weird end of summer feelings because in some ways it feels like the longest summer ever. Like the longest summer. Yeah, most like boring it started summer. in March. <laughs> Yeah, and now it's kind of coming to an end, and for like the first time, I'm not going back to school in the fall, and like yeah, I've got a like crazy feeling. I know for the first time in 19 years, I won't be going to school in the fall, so it's just kind of like gotta gotta make a plan. But I'm also really excited. I'm so excited to go back to Halifax. I'm so excited. What are we talking about today? So today, I just sort of picked a random one a few weeks ago. I've already warned Linnea. I wrote this one like almost a month ago now. So a lot of it's going to be surprising to me as well. <laughs> but I just was like, I don't even, I saw the title. I was like, I don't even know who this person is. I don't know what this heritage oh, minute great. is. I didn't remember it. And so we're going to do John Peters Humphrey. Do you know who John Peters Humphrey is? So he's a Canadian. (laughs) He's a Canadian who drafted the um, Declaration of Human Rights. So the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Never knew a Canadian drafted it. That seems Um, like a big deal. That seems like we should have learned that in history class. 
the Heritage Minute is like him in a boardroom and a bunch of people, like representatives from different United Nations nations coming in. So there's like huh. a French guy and he's like, ha, ha, ha. let us talk <laughs> about world peace. And they're like arguing with him essentially. And he's just like, no, this is the way it has to be, blah, blah, blah. And so he writes it and then you jump to the present day and there's a woman in a wheelchair who is like arguing for her like right to access to work and stuff like i think right. the the premise is that she got fired from a job because she was in a wheelchair essentially and right. then there's like these people in the audience and they like whisper to each other and they're like hey isn't that the canadian who drafted the un human like rights uh like declaration of human rights and then it just cuts to this old man in the back smiling just like <laughs> terrifying looking it is one of the weirdest heritage minutes i'm like okay old one kind of it's definitely 90s but i don't think it's super old it it's what i never remembered it i it must have not got aired very much because i don't think it's particularly (laughs) successful but he is super super cool and so i was really excited that i picked it because i was going through and i was like ah this guy's the money this guy this has a wicked life. Money. This guy has a wicked He's life. He's wicked smart. He's super cool. So we're going to learn all about John. John Peters Humphrey. John Peters Humphrey. I like that. Three names. Name. Three names. You know, You're famous you know or a serial means. killer. Yeah. <laughs> Spells trouble. Do you know why they do that? Like why? when it's a serial killer? It's so like other, like if your name was uh, like John Allen. Oh, yeah. You don't want every John Allen in the world to be like, oh, God, I'm a serial killer. So they throw the middle yeah. name in, even if they didn't really use it. Yeah. Huh. Huh. John Peters Humphrey is not a serial killer. Whew, I'll, good to I'll say that right now. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very moralistic person. <laughs> no Start murder. Right off the top, we'll say yeah, that. Yeah, no, no murder by his hand, as far oh. as we know. Okay. But, uh... <laughs> okay. So John Peters Humphrey was born on April 30th, 1905 to Frank Humphrey and Nellie Peters in Hampton, New Brunswick. So he's a maritimer. Oh, he's a little maritimer. Little mar- I don't think we've had a New Brunswicker yet. I don't, I don't, don't think we have. Don't Can't think we have. we have. He's the first. <laughs> well. So he's the youngest of three kids. He has an older sister, Ruth, and a older brother, Douglas. And so <laughs> a running theme on this podcast is that uh, great Canadians tend to have rough childhoods. Yeah. But, man, I think John, he might take the cake for having the worst <gasps> no. childhood. No. Man, Grace, Grace, like Johnny McDonald, who saw his, like, brother bludgeoned. <laughs> so, okay. just it gets let me, worse. Let me, let me list off these three events that happened before the age of 12. Oh, Jeepers. So when John was 13 months old, his father, okay. Frank, who was a shoe manufacturer, died of cancer. Sad. Event number okay. one. Okay. When John no was dad. six. No dad. Okay. When John was six, he was in an accident that caused his clothes to light fire. The burns were so severe on his left arm that it needed to be amputated. So the guy oh, also only no. has one arm, which oh, they no. do not mention in the Heritage Minute. Like, yeah. There's no, like, reference to it. Maybe they, like, show it in the costuming, and I didn't notice. But, like... Um, okay. So the dude has one arm. 
no dad. We're down to one arm. You're right. This is pretty bad. No dad. Pretty bad. No arm. And then when he was 11 years old, his mother uh-huh. also died of cancer. Oh. So so he's an orphan with one arm. He's <laughs> a one-armed orphan. <laughs> oh, Take that, Annie. Yeah. <laughs> Beat that. Also, you're in Hampton, New Brunswick. Yeah. What else are you going to do? You're That means you're from a small town and you're the one-armed kid with no yeah. pants. And you know that he was the one-armed orphan. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The one-armed orphan. Oh, Sing man. us a song of your woes. He's <laughs> like, no, not again. <laughs> That's brutal. So his older sister, Ruth, who would go on to be a distinguished academic at the University of British Columbia in her own right. So she kind of goes on and has this like pretty amazing life. But she has become their guardian because she's the eldest. But she she's leaving New Brunswick or not uh, New Brunswick, but she's leaving Hampton to attend Mount Allison University. Oh, good for her. And his older brother, Douglas, is also leaving for school at the same time. So he had entered, mm-hmm. like, business school, and he was going off. Um, and eventually he would have a career with, in Montreal with an investment company. But this okay. meant that John was the only person left behind for their father's executor, who was um, a partner with the Scoville Brothers of St. John and was the owner of a clothing business. Okay. And he considered it his duty to Frank, so to their father, to ensure the estate would preserve its capital. So essentially, he's like, my responsibility is to make sure that whatever Frank left behind stays valuable. And so all the heirs essentially should make their way into the job market as quickly as possible, okay. which is what every 11-year-old wants to hear. Right. From the guy who's managing the money. It's like, well, you're 11 years old. You only got one arm. But, you know, (laughs) you better empty the job market, kid. You could be a chimney sweep and nothing else. (laughs) He could be Oh, he could be one of those. What are those called? Those little boys that are like. A newsie. Paper, paper. Read all about it. (laughs) Read all about it. But he's only got one arm to like wave the newspaper around. Yeah. It's like, I can't collect the money because I got to hold the newspapers in my arm. I bet he figured out how to do a cool little trick with his little stumpy. <laughs> John Peters stump free. <laughs> oh, I know. We're not making fun of people with disabilities, but you know. Absolutely 100% not. 100% not. Um, yeah. So this is where we're at at 11 years old. <laughs> okay. Life's rough. So both of John's parents had come from pretty large families, but despite this, none of John's aunts or uncles were able to take in another child. So it was decided that the best thing for him would be to send him off to boarding school. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he's going to Rothsay Collegiate School. Oh, that still exists. I know it does. Yeah. Yeah. So fortunately. People who got shipped off there to play hockey. (laughs) To play hockey. Quote, yeah. unquote. <laughs> I'm going because I'm great at hockey. <laughs> That's what my mom told me. <laughs> no, uh, Ross, say, we, we will say, is, is uh, tends to be known for being, at least in my experience, for being a school for bad kids. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, but they do have some higher level athletics teams. So that's where they get like 
they're good kids sometimes. But it is known for being like a disciplinarian school, um, which yeah. is why sports is such a big culture of their school. Right. Um, yeah. But yes. But moving along. Shout out. Yeah. Shout out. <laughs> shout out to Ralph Say. Yeah. So fortunately, Frank had been uh, prudent enough to take out a life insurance policy, which was pretty rare for the time. So life insurance isn't really common when he passed away. But this was enough money to look after his children's education and other needs. So money isn't really the issue, which is good. That's awesome. So the mission of Rothsay for those who wish to pursue higher education was to prepare students to take the McGill normal examinations, which were necessary to enter any university in Canada. So it's essentially oh. like uh, like the SATs, except right. McGill runs them. And if you want to go to any university, you basically have to do them. Right. So Just a standardized um, test, yeah. Yeah, and so like the, the boys that are going there a lot of them are geared towards higher education or they're taking courses to prepare them to go off to the Royal Military Colleges. Um, Right, right. So at this time, Humphrey kind of, or John, he goes to this school in 1916 and he's the newest of 81 pupils. So it's a pretty small school, but it's all boys. Uh, John was extremely excited to set out and because he had like gleaned these like really romantic notions of what a British public school would be like. So he's like reading these books and like, you know, it seems like these boys, they go off, they get their like nice uniforms and then they like become boys and they're in this like gang. Um, Yeah. So he remembers tell like in his writings, he says, nothing seemed to me more desirable than the life of an English public schoolboy, as described in the journals I read. Roth say I thought would be like that. My sister, who was going to Mount Allison University in the fall, supervised the purchase of the regulation school wardrobe, which included such exotic items as an <laughs> Oxford gray military uniform, which was plenty, which had plenty of black braid and the tunic buttoned up to the neck and the school cap. I wanted very much to wear these immediately. <laughs> <laughs> like you sound so boring it's like i've never seen such an exotic item like a gray coat Ooh, Ooh, fancy fashion is this fashion is this fashion well let me tell you linnea it's fashion (laughs) okay so Later on, John would recall that he hated nearly every minute of the four years that he spent at Rothsay. Oh, what a sin. Poor guy. He had such high hopes. He, had, after he that, went in with the highest of hopes. Especially as a as a orphan with only one arm. To go in with such high hopes uh, and have those crash and burn around you was probably a bit of a downer. Crash and burn like the fiery accident that made you lose your arm in the first place. Sorry, John. Um, So John, JP, he was teased from the moment he arrived at Rothsay. Oh, no. John recalled, I was too fat, or at least I was... (laughs) Fat shaming. It's just like on top of having one arm... You're chunky. He couldn't exercise like the other kids, okay? I know. And you're also like 12. Like, you're at that age yeah. where just every boy is like a little chunkier. 
I'm imagining him looking like the friend in uh, Jojo Rabbit, but with one arm. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) So he recalled, I was too fat, or at least the way I wore my uniform must have made me appear so. (laughs) Oh, sweet baby angel. So he's like, but maybe it was the clothes. What if I needed just a different size? (laughs) In any event, at the christening of the new boys, when we were thrown into the college brook, I was christened Fatty, an epitaph which degenerated in the mouths of my enemies to fat ass. (laughs) So from the minute he's there. Wait, 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 wait. wait. What year is this? This is 1916. In 1916, people were calling people fat asses? Yeah, I guess so. That is the one thing. I'm like, people curse, I think, in a very similar way to as they have always cursed. Except maybe there are a few words that, like, we don't use anymore. But, like, like, I think the F-bomb and, like, ass and (laughs) shit. Those are, like, some of the oldest words in the English language. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just, like... That stuff doesn't go away. Well, and using, like, the Lord's name in vain, like, God and hell and Jesus and... <gasps> this is a Christian podcast. Oh. Clutch my pearls. Uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Gotta say Thank them you, all. Thank you, Linnea. Thank you. So my, anyways, uh... JP is nicknamed Fatass. <laughs> <laughs> Fatass. Oh, what a sin. Okay. Oh, God. Continue. <laughs> uh, he was also bullied for having one arm, because, duh, they're like... Little shit boys. Kids are awful. And he was often called the one-armed Duke Horbor, Hobor, which I looked up is like a derogatory term for a specific group of Russian immigrants. (laughs) Which he's not Russian. (laughs) So I I feel like somebody learned that word and they're Uh like, ah, yeah, I got like (laughs) a good one. I'm trying to oh, think. It's like in the, um, it's like in uh, uh, Huckleberry Finn. There's yeah. like a word um, that they they learn, and they think it means something really really bad, but it doesn't. But they use oh, it all the time. Yeah. Oh shit! What is that word? They do a play on that in the TV show Recess as well. They're told <laughs> they're not allowed to swear, so they like they just start using the word womps. Womps. So like everything womps, and like or like you know like go womp yourself or like that womps or like she womps or your hair womps it just becomes this word and becomes this whole ordeal and it's just about you know the power we put behind words so you know what jp those were just words sticks and stones man sticks and stones ransom it's ransom (laughs) it's like so they'll go through the yeah like huckleberry finn and like tom sawyer and the gang they're just like pretending to take prisoners but then i think they actually like harass a bunch of kindergartners and they're like we'll ransom you which they think means like stab you but but it doesn't it doesn't (laughs) anyways that's what i think duke how they came up with the insult that's funny so in addition to the name calling the school had a time-honored tradition of uh about to say problematic word fagging quote-unquote which means that a younger student would have to like run errands and do stuff for the older pupils so like you would get your like person which it's like making someone your bitch 
Like they yeah. just do everything for you. So John remembers a refusal to do some humiliating thing or even the simple wish to was sanctioned by the obligation to point. This meant leaning over, touching one's toes with one's fingers or receiving on a part of one's body, which in my case was too often fat. (laughs) A certain protection, a sharp blow. So it's essentially like I can just hit you when I want to hit you. I am having flashbacks to junior high. (laughs) I'm feeling... traumatized (laughs) it's junior high with only boys and teachers don't care because they think like that's good for you that's good for you oh what a what a little trooper oh yeah and i hate how often he's like man i was fat (laughs) like like, i feel like there's some deep part of his brain where he like believes it he was like man i i was fat (laughs) that's why i was bullied that's why i'm an orphan that's why i only have one arm (laughs) It's just that. I'm fat. No one will ever love me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not the case. Everybody Funny. deserves love, especially yeah. children. <laughs> especially children who might feel a little insecure. Yes. So not only are students horrible to each other, but so are teachers to the students. So corporal punishment was really common at Rothsay. John described how it was employed at virtually any time. Beatings were dealt out from all of the staff uh, to any student, especially runaways. So if you try to leave the school, that's like the worst thing you can do. And then you would also be punished with isolation. So you like get caught and then you're put in like solitary confinement. In the first few years uh, at Rothsay, Humphrey did not fall out of favor with any teachers and he did pretty well academically. However, he did not get along with his fellow pupils. Sports were an important aspect of school life, especially from a social perspective, but he wasn't allowed to participate because of his handicap. So it's not even like you're doing poorly. It's just like, get out. It's like, we don't even (laughs) want you. Yeah. The drill and physical training instructor considered the only suitable activity for him was to play bugle in the cadet band. <laughs> How do you play a bugle with one hand? Well, you don't got to play any notes. You just hold it. Oh, I guess. Right. Yeah. It's not like I was thinking like a trumpet. Yeah. Um, there's no valves. You just got to like yeah. hold it up. Yeah. So... Which, like, it's not even part of the sport. So, like, the bugle player just leads the church parade every Sunday. That's all no he got to do. He was chubby. He had no way to be physically active because they no wouldn't one let, him. let him. What a <laughs> sin. Oh, man. You're right. I'm feeling real bad for this guy. I think this might be the worst childhood. And we're not even and then, out of the childhood yet. Well, and then to go on and have a, like, heritage minute that doesn't really do anything spectacular for anyone we didn't even remember it i don't even remember it (laughs) you should watch it afterwards though because it's fucking weird i would like to (laughs) so it was therefore difficult for him to become integrated into day-to-day school life shocking (laughs) when you make Mm. someone feel different they don't feel like they're making any friends In addition to teasing, he was bullied by classmates who were an average two years older than him. So that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Like, he was young entering the school. So right. he's like a little baby. And they bully yeah. him all the time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he made up his mind to run away. 
if he could not overcome the bullying problem. So he's like, that's it. I'm going to run away. His difficulties were finally resolved in October of 1918 when he did change rooms. So eventually they were like, I guess if this kid is on the brink of a mental breakdown, we will put him in a different dorm. Okay. (laughs) So he was, I guess he was put with an older boy whose name was Gordon McPhail. And Mm -hmm. so Gordon is like the star athlete. And this arrangement kind of like it made him it gave him an in because he's like Gordon's buddy and so Gordon will protect him okay was Gordon nice to him yeah so so Gordon agreed to accept this like new roommate at the request of his older sister Agnes who was a close friend of Ruth's so their older sisters are friends and girls getting it done let me tell you I know so Agnes is like Gordon you better be freaking nice to this kid and you better like look out for him and he's like fine and so he does Ugh. <laughs> boys and their sisters john's uncle percy also persuaded school authorities to like make this change yet it's probably writing letters home every day being like this is the most awful place I've <laughs> literally ever been. please save me i'm gonna run away <laughs> and that's the thing so like we have a lot of his personal papers like in archives and stuff and so yeah like he's constantly writing to ruth and he's like i hate this i hate this i hate this (laughs) oh my god so the issue then becomes though as john becomes like cooler with the peers he begins to have more difficulties with his teachers so now he's like i don't need to listen to my teachers i don't need their protection because i'm like cool and i got my friends and he's getting older, and he's just like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> he's 13 now. Tell me how that went, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Humphrey recalls enjoying a good relationship with one of his teachers, uh, so W.A. Haynes. Uh, this teacher was his, like, art teacher, essentially. And okay. John was a pretty good artist, and he had this, oh. like, desire to become a cartoonist at the time. So he's like so cool. Yeah, he's being like nurtured in this way. Also, he has like a lot of family members who would like go on to be artists. Like his Mm -hmm. aunt was a really famous artist and his cousin was a famous artist. So like this is like so Ruth, she his older sister like goes out of his way to make sure that uh, John could continue to receive drawing lessons from Haynes for like an extra fee. But Nothing really ever came of these lessons in the terms of, like, a, like, career, but it does give him one outlet at Rothsay that's, like, productive. (laughs) Right. But outside of Haynes, like, John really has no positive experiences at Rothsay, and he's growing really tired of it. So when he goes back to Hampton for Christmas in 1919, he was basically staring down the prospect of another two and a half years at Rothsay before he could take the McGill normal exam. Yeah. And for a second time, he decided that he was going to run away from the school. Oh, my God. So he's talking with his friend's older brother. So did he run away the first time or did he not? So he like he attempts a runaway, but it doesn't work out. Um, It wasn't very exciting. That's why I didn't include it very much. But so he's talking with one of his older brother's friends. at Christmas, so his his older brother's friend's name is Jack, and mm-hmm. Jack was in his final year of high school and was planning to go to Mount Allison University, 
Um, admission to New Brunswick universities only required passing the provincial matriculation examinations in August. So like you don't need a certain number of credits. You just need to pass the exam. Right. If you could pass the exams, you've passed the course, you can move on. Okay. Jack suggested that he and John take these examinations at the same time. So even okay. though Jack is two years older than John and John... I th- he's only like 16, I think, at this point. Okay. He's like, I'm going to write these exams. Or he's not even Let's 16. I think he's 14. Oh, my God. He's like, I'm ready to go to university. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> or sorry. <laughs> I'm ready to go to university. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> that's better. So this was problematic since the curricula and the texts were different and one subject, botany, wasn't even taught at Rothsay. So he's going to have to take this matriculation exam having not done most of the coursework. Right. Um, Sounds smart. Sounds good. Sounds like a great idea. But Jack was like, I'm going to help you. Um, He finds him the necessary textbooks. And so John returns to Rothsay to begin this like double life of studying in secret. So he's taking Jack. No, Jack knows Jack. (laughs) Jack knows Jack. So John is studying and he was writing the practice exams with mixed results. So he's not doing super well. Um, In retrospect, John said that he was wholly unprepared to enter university. But nonetheless, at the young age of 15, he wrote. Oh, my God. And he passes the normal exam. And he enrolls at Mount Allison, despite his sister being like, this is a terrible idea. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, unsurprisingly, John was just as unhappy at Mount Allison as he was at Rothsay. Wow. I'm so surprised. (laughs) Though though this shock on my face. (laughs) Let me tell you, folks, she looks shocked as hell. (laughs) So this time, though, he feels like it's his own fault because it yeah. is. That's good. So he says. Little ownership is good for you. Yeah, a little, a little self-reflection. Yeah. Um, he says, I came to Mount Allison too young and quite unprepared for university. Yeah. Because he's 15 years old. <laughs> yeah, he is. So John had been so focused on getting out of Rothsay that he never really thought about what he wanted to study or what he wanted to do after graduation. Right. He also said that Rothsay had made him a snob. Um, So as he put it, I had nothing but disdain for the sons of Methodist ministers and farmers who made up the great majority of the Mount Allison student body. I heartily endorsed every prejudice that it was possible to have. In the result, I soon became very unpopular, except in the small cotier of like-minded people whom I first frequented. So he's also just, like, learned all these bad behaviors at Rothsay to be, like, mean to other people and, like, judge them. And so now you're this 15-year-old kid in university not making friends because you're an asshole to everybody. (laughs) So after two years, John said goodbye to Mount Allison, and he transferred to McGill University in the Bachelor of Commerce program. He chose McGill because Ruth was living and working in Montreal as a teacher, and this allowed him to reunite with his sister. So at least now he's, like, with family again. For the first time since he's 11. Right, and he's also got someone who seems to have his best interests at heart. I know, yeah. She seems to be, like, the mastermind behind everything. Yeah. 
So commerce, again, was not to John's liking, and he and left him with a strong aversion to accounting, but he grinded it out and graduated with a B.com in 1925 at the age of 20. Good for him. So he's like, I don't like accounting. Too. I know. Like, 20 yeah. years old, you have your Bachelor of Commerce degree, but things are starting to turn around a little bit. So Okay. While he's at McGill, he met uh, Stephen Leacock and Percy Elwood. Percy Elwood instilled John with a passion for law, while Stephen Leacock, who at the time was a famous humorist and the William Dow Professor of Political Economy and longtime chair of the Department of Economics and Political Science, inspired him with an interest in political science. So these are two professors that he has, and he's like, oh, these people are cool. And okay, like, that's good. They're sparking an interest in something. More positive role models. Thank God. Yes. Okay. This new sense of purpose led John to register for both a BA and then later a Bachelor of Law. So mm -hmm. Leacock told John that if he wanted to graduate quickly, he could take his last year of arts and first year of law simultaneously, which today mm -hmm. would be the equivalent of 54 credits that at a time. Like a bad idea <laughs> sounds like a terrible idea but john had learned from his last year at rothsay that he was capable of carrying this level of academic load if the end was important enough to him and he did manage it with great success wow so he is a smart kid and he did learn like military discipline at rothsay so he's just like i'm trying to just get out of this as quickly as possible which i would not recommend as an uh, approach to academia generally but no it works for no. him works works for this guy in 1925 in 1925 yeah so he graduated in 1927 with his BA and then he graduated in 1929 with his uh, Bachelor of Law and then mm -hmm. he applied to the Quebec bar that same year so wow. it looks like at this point he's going to be a lawyer he's moving up in the world at his graduation, John was awarded a fellowship to study in Paris. So now he's like, I'm going to go to Europe. As he I'm going to go paint French ladies. Well, on board the ship oh. that was oh. taking him, he met Jean Gaudreau. Gaudreau. Sounds and like a French lady. This uh, little romance would soon lead to marriage. So literally, like shortly after arriving in France, they're married. They meet on the boat huh. and they're married by the time they're like walking so, around the streets of Paris. From what I know of history, like real history and then movie history, <laughs> apparently this is a thing. Like people Meeting meet on, on boats. boats and just like get married. They're on these big like steamers and they're just like, yeah, let's just do it. Because there was always a minister on board. Oh, yeah. International waters. Anything International goes. International waters. Just, <laughs> yeah. Just getting married. Getting married on Water. boats. <laughs> the love boat. I bet, they, I bet they upgraded your suite, too. If you were Maybe. Like, oh, actually, we just got married. They were like, here you go. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's purely a, a marriage of convenience, but like <laughs> the shortest convenience in your life. Like, right? It's like, man, I want a queen size bed. That's Hey. It. Hey, you over there, you want a, you want a queen size bed? You want a queen? And then you get married. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> All right, so he meets this lady. They get married. They get uh, married. He's, he's still in France right now. So in France 
for a short period of time, but then he's like back, coming back. So him and With Jean, her? Yeah. Okay. They're married. So he entered a private law practice upon returning, and then he joined the faculty of law at McGill University in 1936. Oh, so now he's like working at McGill. John became cool. more and more interested in international law. He began studying towards a master's degree in international law while teaching at McGill University. So he's also teaching and studying. Like, he's never, like, going to do one thing at a time. (laughs) No. It seems that John was, to some degree, this, like, renaissance man. So he would balance and connect his love of human rights, law, and art in many very profound ways. Uh, He became very active within Montreal's art community where he would meet many accomplished painters and writers. Um, While John was at Rothsay, he developed a temper that he acknowledged never really went away uh, and he could easily lose. So he's like got this like vice of he would get angry really quickly. Um, Over time, John tried to funnel this anger into positive action though. So injustice made him fiercely angry, yet he realized from his futile fights that force, no matter how apparently justified, was not the way to resolve issues and certainly no guarantee that the deserving side would triumph. So Hmm. true. He just like knows from his time at Rothsay is like, I get angry when I feel like there's some kind of injustice happening, but fighting doesn't fix it. Like. We need something better. Ding, 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 ding. For example, the situation of the jobless in Montreal during the Great Depression angered him deeply, and under the influence of Frank Scott and King Gordon, he changed from a conservative to a socialist. He began to advocate his belief that governments had an obligation to protect citizens from such disasters through social programming. Through the 1930s and the Second World War, he argued passionately for a bilingual, bicultural Canada with a social safety net, and he promulgated these reviews 30 years ahead of their time on the national CBC radio. So even like before, like really the 1960s, where you start to see a lot of socialist programs happening in Canada, he's like promoting on national broadcasts like this is what we need. This is the only way we're going to be able to protect Canadians from the failures of the government like when the government fucks up the government isn't the one that pays it's the people exactly (laughs) weird yeah (laughs) and it's like yeah it's I think it's something that like really take for granted now but like man like looking at just the way that not that the Canadian government is perfect by any means and I don't think that they've always handled everything perfectly but like just over the past couple of months watching, comparing their rollout to like the US or oh other gosh, countries, it's just like, or like the UK, it's just like, man, I'm very grateful to be from a place that values social security. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A true turning point for John came when he met Henri Legiere. So Legiere was a French refugee who had fled France before the Nazi invasion. He had been working on behalf of the Free French Organization, whose members assisted with resistance efforts in both, both in and outside of the country. Uh, Logier was impressed with John's intellect, love of art and law, and by the fact that he was also fluent in French. Mm-hmm. 
which you know when you're french it's great to speak to someone who can speak french yeah i wouldn't know but yeah i wouldn't know but great (laughs) in the 1940s it was rare to meet an anglophone who had dedicated so much time to learning french when North Africa was liberated in 1943, Logier went to teach at the University of Algiers, and at the end of the war, he moved to a new position as the Assistant Secretary General of the newly formed United Nations. Mm-hmm. Logier had not forgotten his talented friend in Canada, however, and he offered John the directorship of the United Nations Human Rights Division. Oh, look at that little... That kid making friends I've and got getting called up to the big in leagues. United Nations. Nation. <laughs> that like was that. off the top of the head. <laughs> just, just killing it. You're so witty. God damn it. God damn it. Wow. We should have an album. We sing some stupid songs on this. What yeah. if we had our own album of terrible songs, but oh also just the five seconds that we kind of come up with? I bet all our listeners want to hear that. Let us know. <laughs> In the comments yeah. down below. Let us know. DM us. In your, in your Apple review. In your Apple review, which you're going to leave at the end of this episode, uh, let, let us, us know. know. <laughs> yeah. So one of John's responsibilities was to support the work of the Human Rights Commission. The commission was set up to create an international bill of rights that would identify the basic human rights of all global citizens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. During World War II, the Allies adopted the Four Freedoms. So it's the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from fear, and freedom from want as basic war aims. So when the allies are like theorizing, you know, what obviously also all of that is bullshit. But, you know, (laughs) those are their ideals. All right. So the United Nations Charter, quote, reaffirmed faith in fundamental human rights and dignity and worth of human person and committed all member states to promote universal respect for and observance of human rights and fundamental freedoms for all without distinction of race, sex, language, or religion. So this is the first time there's really a global conversation, at least in like a semi-tangible political way, that there should be basic human rights. Before this, that doesn't exist outside of like philosophy. They're trying So when the atrocities committed by Nazi Germany became fully apparent after World War II, the consensus within the world community was that the United Nations Charter did not sufficiently define the rights to which it referred. So they're like, this is still a little fluffy. We want like a bill. Um, Mm -hmm. A universal declaration that specified the rights of individuals was necessary to give effect to the Charter's provisions on human rights. The former First Lady of the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt, chaired the commission. Love that girl. Yeah. I love the name Eleanor. I think Eleanor is like, yeah. there's only really cool Eleanors, you know? She's she's pretty badass, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was basically president for a period of time. She had, and she had her hands in every pot. Oh, like, yeah. Like, they were she a was into the celebrity. Well, and she was into the celebrity and the glamour, and she was into, like, the, like, United Nations actually making stuff happen, mm-hmm. and she was supportive of women and children, and she was, she was a cool lady. Eleanor Roosevelt is a Minute Women Approved. She's a cool lady. Yeah, Minute Women Approved. <laughs> we get one Heritage Minute that's not Canadian, Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's who we pick. Um, and Teddy, because we love him. And you know? Teddy, you know. 
all the Roosevelt's. We're Roosevelt's. talking about them enough. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just get them all in here. So it was her who handed the responsibility for drafting this document to John. So she's like, cool. she's like, John's going to be the guy who writes it. At the time, there were many political challenges before John and the commission. Um, so this included uh, other people like Rene Casset of France, Charles Malk- Malik of Lebanon, and P.C. Chang from the Republic of China. Uh, British representatives were extremely frustrated that the proposal had moral but no legal obligation. South Africa's position to abstain can be seen as an attempt to protect its system of apartheid, which clearly violated yep. several articles of the declaration. Um, the, yep. the Saudi Arabian de- delegation's abstention was prompted primarily by the two declarations articles, uh, one of which is Article 18, which states that everyone has a right to change his religious uh, change his religion or belief, and Article 16, which uh, was about equal marriage rights. So, like, husband okay. husband and wife having equal rights within a marriage. Right. Um, the six communists... Because they weren't that woke. They weren't woke enough <laughs> oh, to no. be talking about same-sex They're not cool couples, with gay but, uh... people, but, you know, yes, you know. wives. They're, That's all right. We're getting there. <laughs> um. The six communist countries' abstentions centered around the view that the declaration did not go far enough in condemning fascism and Nazism, though Eleanor Roosevelt further attributed the Soviet bloc's abstention to the 13th article, which gives citizens the right to leave their country. So you have, like, Mm -hmm. all of these really important wealthy nations who are like, we don't like it. We We don't like what John is drafting. That's that's uncomfy for us. That doesn't make me feel good. But how do I subjugate people? You're making <laughs> you're making this very difficult. I don't I think just... you understand. <laughs> <laughs> Eleanor, I, I don't think you get it, lady. Listen, John, Ellie, I get what you're trying to do. <laughs> but, but this is really no. it's really crunching my style, you know? <laughs> in your style. <laughs> but what if a husband and wife aren't equal? <laughs> what if, just hear me out, what if men are up here and ladies down quite a ways below but still allowed to sleep below in the, the belt, bed, okay? if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> elbows, 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 <laughs> rabble, rabble, rabble. <laughs> oh, dear God. All right. So, so people this are This is all problems. in the Heritage Minute. <laughs> <laughs> So people are having issues, um, uh, but what happens? So because we have key players who are determined and believe in this goal, so like the people that are involved in the commission, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted Mm -hmm. by the General Assembly on December 10th, 1948. The document has been translated into 321 languages and dialects. It is probably the most cited international legal document drafted by a Canadian. That is so cool. So despite this monumental achievement, John was not widely recognized for this in his home country. So Canada doesn't really acknowledge his participation in it for a really long time. 
Yeah. And it's probable that John did not receive wide recognition for his work during his lifetime because human rights advocates who constantly criticize governments tend to become unpopular in official circles. And yeah. this unpopularity can affect public awareness. So it's kind of like what we talked yeah. about when we were on um, North and Normal podcast, as Spencer brought up, yeah. is like there's political reasons that heritage minutes don't get made. And there's political reasons why some people aren't recognized as heroes, even though yeah. what he did, I think every Canadian would say is like, oh, that's a universal good. Like, that is a good thing yeah. that he did. And he was Canadian, but not many people right. know him. And it's one of those ones that I think today would be probably recognized at a much higher regard and in a much better light. And maybe if his Heritage Minute had been made in, you know, 2019, 2020, and these ones rolling out now, mm -hmm. uh, it would have been a little bit more emphasis put on that work. But, uh, yeah, for sure. You know, um, times change. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that John was deeply shocked and offended when Canada abstained from voting initially. So Canada was going to be an abstention vote on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, oh, my God. So, and that was when it was at third committee. So it's not at the final vote, but at right. third committee, they're going to abstain. Um, he was wow. he was not very satisfied when Canada changed um, its vote later to an affirmative vote. So right. at the final kind of vote, they decide not to abstain, and they decide to vote in favor of it. Um, right. From that point on, he was very critical of Canada's human rights record. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for the rest of his life, as you would be, yeah. And he's like, he's like, oh, I'm not going to pull punches. Like, this is probably the place I have most influence, and so I'm going to be critical when when Ottawa isn't yeah. following the declaration that I wrote. Like, I know it word for word. <laughs> Literally, so, my words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Imagine having to deal with the guy who not only like knows it back of his hand but he wrote the thing so he's like oh no yeah. i know what you agreed to <laughs> yeah so for nearly 50 years he is just like in ottawa making enemies with any politician who is not following the U united nations right. declaration right. of human rights and so he's like always on parliament hill with like these really high moral values uh, mm -hmm. policymakers probably grew very tired of this criticism and they ultimately found it just simpler to ignore him. So right. John does not get recognized for a lot of his accomplishments because the people that would be the ones who would go on to create or like start that initiative don't like him. He began to gain wider recognition in the closing years of his life when papers proving his authorship of the first draft, um, which mm -hmm. had initially been wrongly attributed to someone else so for a long time it's thought that Rene Cassin of France wrote the first draft but it's actually right John but she didn't um I think it's a boy I don't know Rene could be either or oh right Rene yeah that could be a guy yeah I think it's I think it's guy. the male or masculine spelling yeah. but anyways yeah so these like papers kind of come out that prove his authorship and slowly, Good. the story of his enormous contributions emerged and acknowledgement mm -hmm. came from many quarters. So slowly, the story of his enormous contributions emerged and acknowledgement came from all quarters except for mm -hmm. in Canada. So like the whole world is recognizing him and Canada's just yeah. like, nah. Ugh. 
But anyways, you know, he so he works for the UN for 20 years. Um, he retires wow. from the UN in 1966 to resume his teaching mm-hmm. career at McGill. And that's where he wow. would remain until 1994. Um, wow. He remained an active promoter of human rights for the rest of his life. Following his UN retirement, he served as the director of the International League of Human Rights as a member of the Royal Commission on the Status of Women and a member of the team that launched the Amnesty International chapter in Canada. Holy cow, that's amazing. With that's, This dude is cool. He's awesome. He's like the best, like, I was bullied and I made the most of it. Like, <laughs> he triumphed. And he was even bullied by his country. All the while, he has one arm. Yeah. Let us remind you. Don't forget that. Don't forget. The dude has one arm. Like, I just feel like that is, like, something that you should... Like, I just, like, imagine the perspective that gives you. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah. I I feel like there are some... Like, if I were to write a bill of international human rights, I would Mm. not have perspective on race. I would not have perspective on, like, gender or, like, uh, gender expression equality or, like... Uh, like queer rights like all of those things I would be so like blind to and I feel like Mm -hmm. for the time the fact that he does have a disability would be something like a whole dimension that no one would have thought of yeah 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 no definitely definitely so with colleagues from the University of McGill he was instrumental in creating the Canadian Human Rights Foundation Mm-hmm. John partook in several international commissions of inquiry, including a mission to the Philippines to investigate human rights violations under Ferdinand Marcos and the International Commission of Inquiry into the 1932-33 famine in the Ukraine. So he's okay. also like an on-the-spot lawyer as well. Yeah, he's a cool he's guy. He's so cool. He's a smart guy. He's S- smart. Smart. He's cool. He's got one arm. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) that's all I could say. (laughs) At the UN, uh, he sought compensation for Korean women who were forced to act as sex slaves during the Korean War, I believe, uh, or the Second World War um, during Japanese occupation. Mm -hmm. He also campaigned with war amps for reparations for Canadian prisoners. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, I was going to ask if he was involved with war amps. He was. Growing up, I, I actually babysat a girl who she's not a girl anymore. She is a she's a woman. Um, she's fully grown. Uh, I was really worried actually, that was go, gonna go in a different direction. <laughs> no, she's a farm. Like, she's not a girl anymore. She's dead. <laughs> she's very cool. Shout out to uh, Bromlin Myra, but she was born with only one arm. Oh okay. And uh, and yeah, she's in a bunch of the War Amps commercials. Oh, really? And it was like, when she was little, we used to watch them. Because it was like, <laughs> she'd be swimming in a pool. And she'd be like, look, it's me. Um, but yeah, no, she's one of the most inspiring people I know. Just because you'd never know that she only had one arm. And had had one arm her entire life. Aww. Yeah, she's just, she's beautiful and smart and great. And yeah, that's what you have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean... John is like a he's a big part I don't think he's one of the founders but he really campaigns Mm -hmm. for war amps to help Canadian prisoners um who had been prisoners of the Japanese during the second world Mm war his name in international spheres was becoming synonymous with human rights advocacy 
That's awesome. In 1974, he spoke in opposition of Bill 22, which is the Quebec language law. He testified on July 19, 1974, that English was also an official language in the province, despite the proposed law. So essentially, this law was like, French is going to be the only official language of Quebec, yeah. which o- does eventually okay, pass. Quebec. I mean, yeah. French is the only language in Quebec but um, he and six others testified that section one which provides that French is the official language of the province of Quebec is misleading in that it suggests that English is not also an official language in Quebec which it is by virtue of section 133 of the BNA Act and the Federal Official Languages Act no legislation Mm -hmm. in the National Assembly proclaiming French the sole official language in the province can affect these bilingual areas protected by the BNA Act. Mm -hmm. So he's also, you know, he's, he's, he's interested in every level of government, which I find really interesting. Which is super cool. Like from, he just, he's got a big head full of knowledge. I know. know? And I feel like if you met him, he would debate you on anything. Yeah. Not even even if he doesn't believe it, he's just like, oh, let's let's justify to me why you think that way. And I think that's like yeah. a really productive. Oh yeah, it's for sure. it's annoying as hell, but I think it's a productive no. conversation to have with yourself of like, why well, do I think that way? Yeah. And I bet he would have been a very thought provoking and um, interesting professor to have. Absolutely. Can you imagine disagreeing yeah. with him on anything? Right? He's like, he's the guy. How can I disagree with him? Right? But you just learned so much. So cool. So kind of like nearing the end of his life in 1979, his wife of many years, Jan, she passed away. Um, But he does remarry. So after 51 years of marriage to Jan, he remarries two years later to Margaret Custliner, who was a Montreal physician, and she was a widow herself. Um, And this is who he kind of spends the rest of his life with. Um, John died on March 14th, 1995, at the age of Mm -hmm. 89 in Montreal. Okay. So among his many honors, Professor Humphrey was made an officer of the Order of Canada in 1974 in recognition for his contribution to legal scholarship and his worldwide reputation in the field of human rights. In cool. 1985, he was made an officer of the Ordre National de Québec. Um, and today, the John Peters Humphrey Model United Nations is held in his honor every May in Fredericton, New Brunswick. So, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> that's a cute one. <laughs> that is a cute one. I like that. Since 1988, the McGill University Faculty of Law has held the John P. Humphrey Lectureship in Human Rights, an annual lecture on the role of international law and organizations in the worldwide protection of human rights. In September of 1998, so three years after he passed away, Nelson Mandela unveiled a commemorative plaque to John at the Human Rights Monument in Ottawa as part of... Okay, 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 just wait. (laughs) Nelson Mandela is unveiling a plaque for you in your honor? Yeah, yeah. Like, Nelson Mandela (laughs) spent like half my life in prison and got out and president and of South Africa. Like, yeah. So freaking cool. That's so cool. flew all the way to Canada to do this. Shit. <laughs> um, and this was part of Canada's tribute on the 60th anniversary of the declaration. The wow. John Humphrey freedom award presented by the Canadian human rights group, uh, right 
Excellence in Democracy is awarded each year to organizations and individuals around the world for exceptional achievement in the promotion of human rights and democratic development. That is so cool. And then, most importantly, in June of 2008, a memorial to John was unveiled in his hometown of Hampton, New Brunswick. How do you not do that sooner? It's like Hampton, what else do you have? (laughs) Right? I'm going to look up Hampton on a map. I I bet it's not very big. (laughs) John Peters Humphrey's story is truly one of perseverance. Many modern biographers, however, agree that it was his troubled childhood and mistreatment at school that instilled in him a deep sense of right and wrong and the desire to defend those who couldn't defend Mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah. And that's the story of J.P. Humphrey. Oh my goodness. I feel like I one like of the greatest Canadians Canadians don't know about. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. One of the greatest Canadians that Canadians don't know exists. Yeah. He's I think super that's cool. Very true. And I think it's just such that like a super cool. He didn't do anything weird, you know? No. He's like kind of like a Penfield yeah. in that way that like he didn't go off and yeah. do weird stuff with his like no, he's just a chill dude. I don't know just if he was doing chill. good. I think he was okay. like pretty combative intense yeah pretty intense i think he was pretty intense like i don't think you'd want to argue with the guy because i think he'd read you to to watch yeah that's that's fair i'm really excited to watch this heritage minute i feel like i'm gonna do a review on our instagram oh i don't remember this one like at all so that's a good one yeah i'm gonna do a little review on our social medias about it live react to it pretty cool Oh, if I was the Twitter queen like you, I'd live tweet it for the minute. <laughs> for one minute. You get one oh, tweet out. Next tweet, M. Next tweet, G. Oh, G. <laughs> wow. What a minute. JP. OMG, JP. <laughs> uh, well, that was great. No, thank you. I like that one. Yeah. That was a fun one. Okay. We had some laughs. We had some laughs. He wasn't fat by the yeah. end. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't sound like he was. Maybe that's why I married a physician. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. like gotta keep it off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm getting old. <laughs> I gotta keep it <laughs> off. <laughs> uh, okay, so thanks everybody for listening to this week's episode of the Minute Women podcast. Uh, if you're not already following us on our social media channels, please, please do. We're on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast, and we are also on Facebook at the same name. And then we are on Twitter at The Minute Women. Uh, And then we also have a really great website, which is www.minutewomenpodcast.ca. It's got some cute pictures of us, and it's got links to all of the the episodes, every single one of them. And uh, all of the resources and such that Grace includes because she is such a thoughtful historian. She's so... She's so great at her job. Yeah. Her pretend job that we don't get paid for. <laughs> uh, also, please, please, please um, send us a message. If there's anything you have questions about, if we said anything wrong in the episode or any of our episodes, uh, if there was anything you really loved, we'd love to hear from you guys. So please just uh, give us a shout. Let us know. Yeah. And make sure that you rate and review this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to us on but especially to apple podcast users because 
I, the internet gods have decided that your platform is the most important platform. So please yeah. leave us a review. It's a huge, huge help to us because it means that we get to share these episodes with more people. We get to build our little exactly. fun family community thing that we have going on here. Our little, our hive, our nest, Ooh. our something. Yeah, we we'll don't have a name for better. it. We'll come up with something. No. Yeah. Also, if you have a name for us and our fans, uh, please give let us, us know. Please let us know. Yeah. Give us a shout. Make it cute. Make it cute. Make it cute. Make it fun. <laughs> yeah, make sure you download the episodes, subscribe, get your little notifications so you know when this is going to be posted because super yes. new and exciting things are coming. We're going to be moving into our new home next week, which is so yeah, exciting. The sound quality will be so much better. <laughs> you think it's good now. You just just wait. you wait. And yeah, so thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.